This may look like a meaningless gesture as I fiddle with my watch. I assure you, I'm trying to make sure it's not. Um, I'm a 30-minute preacher. I find it immensely difficult to be uh, concise uh, and to preach for only 30 minutes, but Andy said, we'll take 40. So I've no idea. I forgot to look at the watch at the start of the last session. We won't be 40 minutes, but uh, I will keep an eye on timings. Rob has prayed for us, so I think we're good to go. And uh, we are in Jonah 4. As we look at this chapter, the climax and conclusion, with all the lessons particularly for us in, uh, in the book of Jonah. And we're looking at it under the title of Disturbing Grace. And we're asking ourselves three questions. The first uh, being this. Can you love a God who could make a fool out of you? And when we have people in our lives who make us feel foolish or look foolish, that's usually the end of the relationship, isn't it? Now, we didn't sign up to a relationship to be made to look stupid or to feel stupid. But, of course, the answer to the question, could you love a God um, who could make a fall out of you? Well, it starts with this, doesn't it? The recognition that God could. And God might be pleased, lovingly, wisely, for our good and his glory, to make us look and feel very, very foolish and very, very inadequate. Think of Paul's complex relationship with the, the Christians at Corinth. We, we're doing a, a reading the Bible scheme. I write notes to our congregation every day. And we're just getting into 1 Corinthians. And I will look forward to exploring with them the dynamics of Paul's relationship with the Christians at Corinth because he loves them deeply, but he often feels so inadequate and so stupid and so disempowered in his relationship with them. And I think often he realises that's a good thing for himself, but it's not a comfortable place to be in. The, the people in London that I had most difficulties with were two individuals who largely unconsciously exposed in me feelings of great inadequacy and clumsiness and cowardice. I found them really difficult. But after eight years, I, I learned to stop praying them out of the church because they weren't going anywhere. And the Holy Spirit began to teach me it is an incredible love gift that these people and you are in the church so you learn from one another. And I think I learned more through trying to relate to them in a Christian way than perhaps from any other enjoyable, gratifying, encouragement-bringing relationship in the church. And they are still there. And they have grown in grace and I have grown in grace by God's goodness. And I, I resented that relationship because I felt foolish and belittled and inadequate. And I guess you've got a matrix of relationships which bring you the same kind of adrenaline rush as you see those if you think about them. They make, they make you feel foolish. And God made Jonah look and feel very foolish and very inadequate. To Jonah, verse 1, this seemed very wrong. And he became very angry. Really, really angry. This is not what he wanted. He did not want repentance. He wanted judgment. If you think back to the US government's response to 
the 9-11 attack, um, they, they launched what they called in Afghanistan Operation Infinite Justice. And then somebody twigged, somebody who was better informed understanding Islamic culture, that was deeply offensive to Islamic culture's Operation Infinite Justice. And so it was changed quickly to Operation Enduring Freedom. How would Americans come up with a label with freedom in it? <laughs> Who would have thought? But, but Operation uh, Enduring Freedom. Now, which operation did Joan want to be sent on? Enduring Freedom for the guilty Heldersevan Ninevites? Or Infinite Justice? He wanted Infinite Justice, didn't he? And we want people we find hard, or people who have hurt us, to get God's justice. Now we know we want them to get saving grace, but we wouldn't mind a little justice on the way to their experiencing saving grace, would we? That would make us feel good, that would be fair. And while people don't get the justice we feel they should get, we feel foolish. And we feel that maybe God is in charge of our foolishness and God has perhaps something to answer for. Verse 2. And this, this really unpacks Jonah chapter 1, doesn't it? And Jonah's flight. But we only get it fully revealed here. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew. I knew, Lord, I knew what you were going to do because I know who you are. Because I know how you relate to your covenant people Israel. I knew you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. He's been reading his Bible that morning, hasn't he? who relents from sending calamity. Now, Jonah should be on his face in worship, weeping tears of joy. He is quoting scripture at God to accuse God. You're just the wrong kind of God. When I need you to come through for me, you jolly well go and show grace and love and compassion. And he feels foolish. He feels foolish. Scripture shows us all sorts of men and some women too who wrestle with God. Abraham, Moses, David, Job, Hannah, Habakkuk. Jonah joins that noble line of praying men and women, but don't copy his prayer. <laughs> don't get them to learn this prayer in Sunday school. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. In fact, in Sunday school, you see this behaviour and you call it a tantrum. And none of us in this room are above having tantrums. Just ask our spouses or those who know us best. Jonah has led a revival meeting, a city has been turned upside down by the grace of God. And he is as mad as hell because God has made him feel foolish and inadequate. He did not 
travel there to find this mess unravelling in front of his eyes. Perhaps journalists, like many Christian leaders I know, they want everything to be just neat and compartmentalised and hassle-free. And as long as God is working, they're thrilled. But if God is working in a way which, as I said yesterday, they get a bit of glory on them, they're very pleased indeed. But God does crazy, unpredictable things right under our noses. Often the, precisely the opposite of what we want, whether we're leaders or not, could be church, could be family, they're not making us look very silly. So two people who, who stand out in my mind in my uh, years of ministry in Chiswick, there, there, was, there was one guy who became convinced that he should sink his life savings into starting a church in Kenya. Now this man had no ministry experience, no leadership experience, He'd failed at everything he tried in life, and he was about 65 at the time he went out to um, the backwoods in Kenya. He sank tens and tens and tens of thousands of pounds into this ministry in a handful of years. He became fervently, narrow-mindedly Pentecostal and barely thought I had the Spirit of God. And when he burned through all his money, he came back with his tail between his legs. And, wow, that reflects well on me, doesn't it? You see what a gifted guy I am to have released him into such a flourishing ministry. Another woman, a, a, a missionary in Southeast Asia for many, many years, decided she'd become a Roman Catholic nun. Which made us as elders feel really pleased that all the, all the, all the, all the Bible teaching we were trying to you know, invest in her and encourage her with had kind of come to her taking vows and becoming... A Catholic nun. Does, does this is only my ministry in my life where stuff happens. You go, well, where did that come from? How is that of the Lord? How does that reflect well on me? I just think we have to have a great big category that says God is sovereign and I'm perplexed. And I'm not going to have a, I'm not going to cry over that. And it's okay if I feel a little foolish. Because it's not really about me. And how people think of me, my work, my ministry, or my parenting, or anything else by which we judge ourselves and assume other people do as well. Who cares? God is working his purposes out. So will you pity Jonah, please? Jonah certainly did. He'd wanted to share in his little pity party. And I think Jonah was pitying himself because he could almost hear the mockery of the folks back home in his, in his mega church. He wanted to go home and say, yeah, well, I went into Nineveh and it was tough. They wanted to lynch me. But just as they were coming to get me, as I preached, just when God just sent a, sent a rocket from the sky, the whole place was totaled, and I just about got out. And they think, whoa, respect. That is the kind of preacher we want leading our mega church, a man who preaches judgment and God delivers. Jonah's got to go back to covenant land and they'll say, right, Jack, how did you get, what was the body count? And he'd say, guys, it's like this. They're all going to heaven. <laughs> they all repented. And they're going, what? <laughs> they are our enemies. God's enemies. What 
did you, what, how did that go wrong? And Jonah's got this awful black hole in his CV that he's kind of got to cover over as he tries to rebuild his reputation, or so he feels. One of my sons recently said something to me which was terribly embarrassing. He said, Dad, you are complaining a lot at the moment in life, aren't you? And I tried to wriggle in any direction. I thought, no, he's absolutely skewered me. I am a complaining man. I am a self-pitying man. And maybe you are too, or you're a self-pitying woman. It's ugly. There's never any reason. You're complaining because you want God to make more of you and other people to join him in that. God has made all of us we ever need to be. He's adopted us and ransomed us at the price of the blood of his own son. And we're complaining that life doesn't go exactly as we want it to be or we don't get the attention that we crave. That's pretty shabby, isn't it? Let's allow God to make a fool of us, our ministry, as long as he gets the glory. Second question. Can you believe in a God whose mercy trumps your judgment? The Ninevites deserve wrath. Jonah is hoping, fingers crossed, they're going to get it. But what does God give them? He gives them mercy. I remember reading, now I think I got the pronunciation wrong. Any ornithologists here, help me out please, about Quileia birds in East Africa? No ornithologists here? No. I'll call them Quileia birds. Let's pretend I'm an authority on them as I know the most in the room. <laughs> Quileia birds, you may know them as locust birds. I remember reading a report a few years ago about uh, a guy who's in Tanzania. These flocks come in. They are several million birds at a time. That is noisier than the parakeets in western southwest London, isn't it? These screaming, shrieking swarms of millions of birds. And woe and betide you if you were a farmer in Tanzania at the time of the rice harvest and you start hearing from perhaps a mile or more away these birds coming in. So all your toil and all your hope of economic survival is basically focused upon your rice harvest coming through and being safe from these birds and uh, other predators. And so the villagers, if, if these birds would come, would, would, would bang the pots and shout to the point of exhaustion to try and protect their livelihood. And this, this journalist says, he says, at night... Uh, when the birds were nesting, we saw the farmer laying out his cable, placing his charges under the trees. And it was actually hard not to laugh a little as these nests and trees and birds were blown sky high by the dynamite. And most of us are Brits. We, we love our animals. Anything that's fluffy and foam, we want to protect and nurture and cuddle. We're very sentimental, aren't we? But you're not really sentimental if you're a Tanzanian rice farmer. You, you want infinite justice for your quillea birds, don't you? And that's where we find Jonah wanting infinite justice, wanting some dynamite. But God has decided that his mercy will trump is justice. He doesn't cease to be just. Because in all of God's merciful dealings with anybody, that mercy comes, as we were learning last session, 
at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is how he can be just and sovereignly decide to be merciful at the same time. And so the Lord probes Jonah's insistence that Jonah is going to be just and not merciful. Verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? And the question is left hanging. Does God ever ask you questions? His spirit probes your conscience. Normally his spirit probes my conscience as my wife asks me questions. And there are lots of them I don't want to answer. Because the answer would be too humiliating, too exposing, make me feel too foolish. And that question is just left hanging. Again, if Jonah is the scribe, he knows what was going on in his heart. And he wants you to think. What answer could anybody give to God? What answer can we give to God when we are self-righteous? Grumpy. Noisy. We have no right to query God's ways. He is sovereign and he is good. I'll be going to a funeral uh, this coming Friday. A friend of mine in ministry has completed 40 years in Dewsbury, West Yorkshire. I wouldn't last four years in Dewsbury. It is a tough, tough place. It's one of the poorest parts of the country, one of the most uh, Islamicised, and will only get ever more South Asian and Islamicised as the years go on. A friend of mine has been there 40 years. He has had an extremely um, small salary. His wife is qualified as a teacher, Spend many years making ends meet by, by cleaning. And they've brought up four kids there and they have lovingly poured themselves into the life of Jewsbury Evangelical Church. And at the end of last year, he retired. And the Lord gave him a retirement gift, which was a brain tumour to his wife. So after 40 years of, of slog and hardship and toil, as they're looking to a few years together, those gentler, slower, easier retirement years, they spend it as husband and wife and a brain tumour, which has slowly, slowly eaten away at her, reduced all her capacities, and took her away last week. Does my friend have a right to be angry? I guess in our hearts, many of us are thinking, yes. It's, it's, it feels so unfair, doesn't it? It seems so wrong. But then we're, we have to face up to the character of God. He says he does all things well. Jonah says he abounds in love. Jonah says he's full of grace and compassion. Is he? Or is this mere words? My friend isn't angry. He's broken. He's grieving. But he has no right to be angry. He is the Lord. And he does all things well. And his mercy will 
God's grace meets these Ninevites who deserve judgment. They get mercy. Jesus takes God's wrath at and his punishment for our sins. Judgment passes over us and falls on him. And we get mercy. God does not treat the Ninevites as their sins deserve, nor you nor me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God does not need us. We need him. God does not need to show mercy. We need to be shown mercy. And we get Ninevite mercy. The same mercy they got. But we know how we receive that mercy. An incredibly costly sacrifice. Martin Luther said, One drop of the blood of the Son of God means more than heaven and earth. Now I heard those, that sentence about 20 years ago. It's going to take the rest of my Christian life to explore that, think it through and respond to it with amazement and with worship. He is a merciful God. That is our confidence. And that is our incentive for living, isn't it? To live to explore that mercy and to be merciful to others. Thirdly, can you worship a God you can't control? Jonah had gone, verse 5, and sat down at a place east of the city. Why is he sitting down? The same way your three-year-old sits down. They sit down, when they're not supposed to, to assert their power and to give you an opportunity to change your mind. Yeah? Those of us who are parents, we, were, we, we, you know, we know that scenario. They are graciously allowing us time to think through our parenting and to change tack, to get in line with them. And that's why Jonah sits down. He sits down because he's sulking at God and he's waiting for the light show. He's waiting for God to say, I was joking about this mercy business, let's do the justice. That's what he's waiting for. He is willing God, daring God, sulking at God until God does what Jonah wants. And how much is that like us? Most of us got the wit that we won't tell God what to do. That's not our style. But most of us get into ruts and sinful patterns in our lives where we don't talk to God. And that's how we're making it perfectly clear to God that we're unhappy with where he's leading our life, but we're now giving him time to change course for us. And it's self-centred, and it's a sulk, and most of us do it, and it gets us nowhere. If you're a parent and you allow your child to control you, you are in. 
great danger. And you're putting your children in great spiritual and all sorts of other forms of danger. If you're a Christian and you think you can control God by your sulks, your silences, or your storms of rage at God, you are in great... God's not in danger, okay? But you are. And you need to repent and take a leaf out of the book of the king of Nineveh. Get on your face and beg God for mercy. It is the most wonderful good news. We have a God who could smash us if he chose to. That is good news because if there is no power at work in this universe, no mind by this universe, no will controlling this universe, life would be unbearable. But the revelation of God's word is there is a mind, a power and a will who's controlling this universe and he's a God of terrifying power. And yet that power is totally committed to handling us, his people, wisely, lovingly, Gently, for our good, to make us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's brilliant good news. We cannot control God. Just um, allow your mind to run for half a moment. What would you like God to do for you? How would you like God to bend his will to bring it in line with yours? And then think of the chaos of selfishness you could be unleashing in your life and through your desires onto the lives of other people. It's so good. We can't control God. It's so good. He will have his way with us, whether that's through tears, bereavements, shocks, because it's his will. And it's always perfect. And it's always good. He will not compromise his holiness. He will not abdicate from his rule. He will not shape his power to serve what we think he should do. He will always do what is right and just in his sight. One of my very favourite passages in the Bible, actually it's probably the favourite passage of, of some of you as well, is that brilliant passage in Daniel 4. You've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Let's do a quick Sunday school test. These guys, who are they? Where are they in Daniel 4? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they are in? They're about to get in the furnace. Things are going to get literally very, very hot for them. And they're standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar, who is furious with them, because they will not bow down and worship his crazy gods and sign up for his crazy religious and social and political values. So they are about to go... 319, thank you. Ash is trained in this stuff, he can help me. We're in Daniel chapter 3, and they are about to go in this furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely freaking out with rage. And in verse 16, they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves because they won't bow down to his idols in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. Of course he is, he's God. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold 
you have set up. And then we just want to cheer, don't we? Yes, that is it. That is a perspective. That is what our brothers and sisters across the Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia are saying. We will not worship your God and our God is able to deliver us. Or if you take us, take our lives now, he will still deliver us into heaven. That is brilliant. God does not need to show up and rescue us from all of our trials. But he will be there as they discovered in those trials. As they meet the Son of God, Jesus Christ, with them in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and taken to his repentance. God will have the glory as he does here in the salvation of these people. So let's just look quickly a little bit more at Jonah's sulk. He goes out and he sulks and he is so thrilled. Verse 6, in his leafy plant. I like the translation gourd. I don't really know what a gourd is, but I've grown up with it. So I like that word, his leafy plant. And he's just delighted. He's got as much delight in that leafy plant as we do when we have an extension on our house. Or we have a new car. Or a car that's new to us. He's just wonderful. We feel we deserve it. We've, we've worked hard for it. We're entitled to it. We're just going to enjoy it. We don't care about the eternal salvation of our next door neighbour, but we love the nicer house we get to live in next to them. We love the car we can drive them to drive past them. And we are really pleased, very happy about the plant. And God needs to show Jonah Jonah, it's not plants, it's people. It's not savings, it's souls. God loves people, not stuff. We love stuff and people who are gratifying to us. God is the other way around. Remember what is Jonah, what has Andy taught us? Jonah is running from God's laws and God's loves. And Jonah's being told here as that as that worm chews the leafy plant, the lesson is God loves people. God loves people. God is in the business. He set up his stall to save people. And so he wants us to do the same. To stop trying to control our circumstances so that we have the equivalent of shade, material comfort, lifestyle, prosperity, power and influence. God doesn't belittle those things. He just says, ultimately, they're not so important. They're just shade, aren't they, to make life a bit more comfy. Because says, what about souls? What about people? What about your neighbours? Your parents? Your children? The people you see at the school gate? The people who stand on the platform for the tube. They're on God's heart. This is the whole lesson of Jonah, isn't it? God's grace is disturbing. It pulls us out of our comfort zone. It challenges our values. It, 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 it turns them upside down. And it calls them to be like the Lord Jesus, the man of love and compassion. 
Even when God gives Jonah a headache through that scorching wind, Jonah still doesn't get it. I am so angry, verse 9. This is pathetic, isn't it? But this is me, and it might be you sometimes. I wish to die. I need my comforts. I need things I can control. I need people to do what I tell them to do. And if life doesn't go right, I'm cross enough to die. We are allowed to laugh at this point, but in our laughter, we've got to say, do you know, I know a man like him. I know a woman like him. And I love the way that God speaks so tenderly. Couldn't the Lord just send one of those rockets on Jonah at this point? Just leave smoking sandals and the, and the book closes out there. He could do. He should do. But God has this way of trumping his justice with mercy, doesn't he? And there is tenderness in these verses. You have been concerned about this plant. You didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up. It died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there's more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. God loves people. He loves the world he has made. And he loves the world he's made and the people he's populated that world with more than the worlds we want to make. And so will we love what God loves and love who God loves? Because finally, very briefly, that is the call of the gospel, isn't it? This is a, this is a gospel book. It's all about the gospel. God wants to save people. And for God to save people, he needs to work in the hearts of saved people already. Did Jonah get the lessons? Did he get the lessons of God's grace? In a sense, we don't know, do we? But my hope is the very fact that Jonah wrote this book. I think he's saying to us, I was an idiot. I had all this ministry, I knew all these Bible verses, I had this, this, this reputation, this experience of God. Even when God has shown me so much mercy and so much grace, I was a bigger fool at the end of that experience as I was at the beginning. But I think Jonah has reflected, and I hope he repented, and I'm convinced he learned. And he's really saying, look, I think you're fine as you read my book, we're pretty similar. Please learn the lessons I was so slow to learn. God is amazingly patient with us. But don't mistake God's patience with a lack of God's... Don't think that God is patient, but he's not at the same time desperately concerned we learn these lessons of grace. His Spirit has been given as our teacher and as our transformer. The gospel is calling us to believe for ourselves with a deepening sense of need. And the gospel is commissioning us to be people who are merciful. 
If you learn to get over ourselves, it's not about us. The life is about enjoying God's mercy, sharing and speaking God's mercy. I had an email this morning. A lady I pastored for 12 years has gone to glory. She's in her early 90s. She was old and full of years in Bible language. Con Nash, never married, never had a family, None of you know her. She trained in Bible translation with the organisation known as Wycliffe Bible Translators. She spent many years north of Yellowknife. And if you know Canada, that is way up north. It's very, very cold. Working with, I'm not sure if the language is First Nation people, I think so. Working with First Nation people in the far north of Canada in minus bazillions for many many years translating the scriptures doing evangelism bible teaching hard slow unnoticed exhausting when the door to that work closed for her and she came back now in her 60s she went to minister to tribes people in kenya on the equator where it's plus zillions and had years of fruitful ministry. Still slow, still hard, always exhausting. Would you like to spend your pensionable years on the equator, living in a hut, teaching tribal people? Well, well that's what she did gladly. Now, the world doesn't know who she is. Her memory will be quickly forgotten. It may live in the hearts of a few people, but that is a life well invested. And I'm not saying... To anybody, give up your careers. Go to Kenya, go to Yellowknife, even go to Huddersfield. I'm saying in the sphere where God has put you, be all there for the people you work with. Stretch yourself in your work day to make sure you can have some time for other people. If you have a few moments to get a coffee, don't just be consumed in your problems. Get to know others. Force yourself to be generous with your time. Be known as a helper, an encourager, somebody who's of transparent integrity and tangible kindness in the workplace. Invest in your children. Don't push them away. Be disciplined in your leisure time. Fold in people. Don't be greedy with it at the weekends. Don't resent the burdens of church life. Humble yourself to bear them with others. That is a life of grace, isn't it? That is a life Jonah was so struggling to learn. It's all about people and serving people for their eternal good. Well, thank you so much. Uh, for your patience and kindness. Let's pray for one another. Lord Jesus, you more than any man ever are the man of compassion. The Jonah man who walked from the depths of the earth to bring justice triumphing mercy to a lost world. And now, Lord, you commission us by your Spirit to go and do likewise, we who have been snatched from hell. 
And Lord, we say again, we need you and we love you. We grieve over our sins and our self-centeredness especially. Lord, we are Jonah. But you are the God all of grace and mercy. Father, our prayer for one another is that you'll be showing us where we are. Just living for pleasure. And where we've established patterns of behaviour which are effectively pushing people away so that we can indulge our own hearts. Lord, help us to rejoice in the sweetness of your grace. Help us to yearn and long for others. And give us, we pray, skill, zeal, single-mindedness and much success as we seek to build friendships, to be instruments of your grace and speakers of your gospel word into the lives of those we work with, we're at home with, we're journeying through life with. Father, thank you for this precious time, for this foolish man so so much like us. Spirit of God, teach us these lessons and give the glory to the Lord Jesus, we ask. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.